Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Coefficient Capital Principal and Rockstar Consumer Investor, Anna Whiteman. Forbes named Anna 30 Under 30 Venture Capital for 2021. Entrepreneur Magazine named Anna among its 100 Powerful Women of 2020. And Business Insider has named Anna a 30 and under rising star in venture. Anna is the founder of Rad Ladies, a network of top female founders, and actively serves on the board of the Veneta Project's New York chapter. She received her BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from the University of Pennsylvania. Anna, thanks for joining us and welcome to Subscribing to Wellness. For starters, can you tell us a little background about who you are and how you landed at Coefficient, as well as what sparked your personal interest in consumer goods. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you both. So as you said, I'm Anna. I'm at Coefficient. We are an early growth Series A and Series B consumer fund focused on consumer businesses that are using technology to create competitive advantage. My interest in consumer, it's, it's kind of roundabout but I went to UPenn undergrad. I studied philosophy, politics, and economics. So I was not a Wharton kid. I was actually starting my career in the nonprofit space when I got some advice to go into finance and just learn how businesses are run from an Excel and, and banking perspective, which is exactly what I did. So after school, I graduated, went to work at Credit Suisse in the financial institutions group. I kind of, I mean, I had taken some consumer psychology classes and actually majored in like game theory and choice and behavior in through PPE, but didn't really realize my love for consumer until I was doing fig banking. And I, I knew I wasn't really cut out for fig banking long-term, but to kind of keep myself entertained, I started a consumer blog on the side called Softwalk. And I think it kept a, a couple of my colleagues in banking entertained as well. It was basically like a trend spotting, cool hunting blog. I would stop like trendy women on the street and ask them what products they were wearing and what beauty brands they loved and like evolved very organically that I just was very into consumer preferences and people's behavior and the way that they express that through their purchases and, and kind of you know, using the wallet as a magnitude of choice. People are, are very intentional with what they buy. And I, I kind of learned that over the course of trying to run this blog. And that led me to just looking at, you know, what I could do on a consumer basis that also tied in my experience in finance um, through banking. So interviewed at a few private equity consumer funds and landed at BMG Partners, which is a big consumer private equity fund out in San Francisco. I was just involved with some really cool deals there. So worked on, you know, a lot of interesting food and bev concepts, a lot of interesting beauty concepts, and BMG's done incredibly well as a fund. So I was just fortunate enough to fall into a really, you know, incredible group of people and an incredible fund. And when you're kind of hitting home runs like that, it it sticks. So I knew it's what I wanted to do. For the rest of my career. So I went over to kind of more the technology side of consumer back on the East Coast at a fund called Tribeca Ventures, and then parlayed that into what we're doing at Coefficient. So helped kind of on the founding team of Coefficient start the fund, $170 million fund focused on, as I said, just the intersection of consumer and technology. So it feels like a, a really natural kind of place for what my background has to offer. And, you know, we're really excited about what we're doing. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper in what you do specifically at Coefficient and what Coefficient does. Can you talk a little bit about the profile of the firm 
in terms of check sizes, the stage of involvement, and what really like makes Coefficient unique or stand out? So we are an early growth Series A, Series B fund. So we will typically invest anywhere between five and 20 million in a business that's doing north of 5 million and trailing 12 revenues using technology in interesting ways to create competitive advantage. So whether that's some form of IP or you know patent around process or formulation, if it's a product or some form of customization or personalization, which a few of our, our portfolio companies are doing in a really unique way to drive retention. We always look for kind of what that that moat is because there's a lot of consumer businesses out there and there's a lot of potential acquisitions for strategics down the line. So really, I think that differentiation on a technology basis creates outsized value over time. So that's what we typically look for in terms of like our value prop and what makes us unique. We have a variety of really cool tools that we've developed in-house that help our portfolio companies continue to drive competitive advantage. We have like a CAC reduction tool that we plug all of our portfolio companies into. As you know, like customer acquisition costs are on the rise and probably one of the most unpredictable parts of trying to scale a business is how much you're going to pay to acquire your customers. So we have kind of good tools in-house to help manage that. Our background in early growth is pretty unique from just the omni-channel perspective. We have a lot of historical experience on the retail scale side. So whereas there's a lot of tech funds out there getting money into the seed and early, you know, Series A environment, they don't necessarily know how to have conversations with Target or Walmart or how to kind of roll out in some of those bigger retailers. And that's really our bread and butter and in, in our historical experience um, as a team. So our competitive advantage and yeah, I mean we lead deals. So I think there's you know an attraction for brands who are looking for a fund to come in and set terms that you know, valuation and there's a lot of follow-on capital in the market and, and we're really out there trying to, you know, win deals and, and lead them. Obviously we'll we'll co-lead and follow on where it makes sense, especially in, you know, much bigger rounds. But that's kind of where we sit and and exciting corner of the market to be working in. I would love to just hear a little more about your portfolio specifically, how it's come together. For our listeners, Anna can talk a little more about it. Coefficient has a great portfolio, some brands that you'll probably recognize are House, Hydrant and Oatly. But could you just talk a little more about how this portfolio came together and your involvement? Absolutely. So we're we're very thesis driven. So there's there's kind of different approaches to investing. Ours is as a thesis driven one where we will dive into specific themes and trends that you know we see as being emergent and you know capturing outside share of market over the course of time. We'll study all aspects of the market. So we'll study all of the brands that are innovating within a specific category or, or domain that we've identified as interesting. We'll speak to experts and we'll develop kind of a really sharp view on where we think the area of the market that's most investable is. And then we'll try to go out and find specifically those companies that are, you know, exactly in line with with that sharp view that we've formed. So that's where, you know, we see as being, you know, kind of uniquely positioned to back the brands that we we end up investing in is like they're the ones that we've identified and gone out to to spearfish for. So an example of kind of a few of the brands in our portfolio, I guess, that are that are just based on this um, thematic approach. Nom Nom is a really cool fresh pet food company. So we kind of identified all the trends and the humanization of pet. And then specifically, Nom Nom is one of the few brands out there that's doing customization at scale. They're vertically integrated and they can basically, you know, figure out the size, weight, and, you know, nutritional profile that your pet needs in their food and, and deliver it to them on a customized basis regularly. So 
that was a theme that we were really excited about. House is a cool one that you mentioned, direct-to-consumer alcohol company. So not a lot of companies, if you're familiar with the three-tier system, can go direct-to-consumer if you're if you're producing alcohol. House has the ability to kind of directly talk to their customers and develop that one-to-one relationship, which is really unique and differentiated. And that was a theme that we were really excited about. Hodinkee is another cool company that we just invested in. It's a, a watch marketplace, a really content-forward one. So this theme was kind of the unbundling of eBay, as you see consumers starting to buy luxury or high-priced goods in various different pockets where they used to go to to eBay for. Now they're looking for content, they're looking for community, they're looking for services around those kind of valuable purchases. And Hodinkee was really an incredible company at the intersection of content and commerce. So that was another theme that we were excited about and and are proud to back a couple of cool winners in in that category. Those are all companies that we're really excited about as well and super pumped to see what the next step is for a lot of them. I'd love to hear a little bit about trends or themes that you're personally excited about or that Coefficient is looking to dig deeper into as you guys expand your portfolio. We're pretty academic as far as funds go. So we did a mid-year trends report over COVID, which has really been an incredible you know, resource for us in determining where people are are spending money right now and how habits are shifting um, post COVID. So one area, or I guess two that that you know we've really identified as being quite sticky post COVID is are the themes of like grocery and fitness moving online. So a lot of interesting opportunity in not only brands that are utilizing you know grocery or or kind of the pipeline that is being laid for brands to be able to transact grocery online, but a lot of the the enabling platforms themselves. So there's a lot of different component parts to getting somebody a head of lettuce from the grocery store or from the warehouse to their home. And there's lots of different investable segments of that market. So we're looking hard at, you know, which which area of the market is right for investment and and you know are excited to put some money there. Similarly, fitness moving online, people didn't have access to gyms. So they did a lot of in-housing of both equipment and basically making, you know, their, they had trainers that they, you know, corresponded with regularly on their smartphone that, you know, now they're, they're staying with, or maybe they're taking these trainers with them on their phone to the gym now that the gyms are back open up. So a lot of just kind of the digitization of both grocery and fitness. Those are themes that we're excited about. I'm personally very excited about just Gen Z, the behavior and kind of, I think it's really cool how there's like this identity fluidity and, and like vast amounts of expressionism that Gen Z is, is moving forward. And that's kind of making itself obvious, not only in social media platforms, but in beauty trends. So looking at a lot of the, the really cool companies that are allowing, you know, access to expression for Gen Z and, and what they're leaning on. And then lastly, I think one category that I'm spending lots of time in, there's a lot of really cool technology in plant-based right now. So that is, you know, cellular ag and fermentation, um, the, the kind of modes of creating plant-based meats, cheeses, dairy, the whole. And I think the American diet is moving in that direction. People are showing a real willingness to adopt plant-based alternatives uh, for both sustainability and health reasons. So we're seeing the convergence of both, you know, technology being able to supply really price competitive alternatives at scale and consumer demand for, for plant-based alternatives. So um, those are kind of three or four areas that, that I'm excited about right now. Yeah, I think all very, very relevant trends. I think going back to Connected Fitness, an area that Rachel and I talk about quite a bit, she used to actually be part of the Tonal team. 
but obviously tonal just raised like 250 million tempo 220 million fight camp 90 million or got a 30 million the list goes on so it's been a big fundraising year for connected fitness are you kind of of the point of view where you know the future of of fitness is really an omni-channel experience splitting kind of time between in person and at home does this trend kind of decelerate now that we're getting kind of back to normality and post covid or is it really a trend that you think is like forever here to stay and will just continue to grow regardless of kind of the covid environment yeah that's a great question and and one that we've spent a lot of time on i think that it is some version of omni channel actually the the early data is pointing to people are going back to the gym in you know faster and and more excited <laughs> rates than they are you know going back to the grocery store for example so the gym as we know it is certainly here to stay but I think it's an, it's an updated experience. So basically there's less machines in gyms, there's less density in gyms. So people are going to want to have one or two machines in their house, you know, when they don't go to the gym to be able to use on their own terms. When you bake in a machine that you're paying oftentimes a thousand plus, Rachel, I'm sure you saw this, people are going to be adherent to those machines because there is this built-in cost of like, in consumers' mind, this goes back to psychology, just the, the marginal cost of the machine goes down every time you use it. So the retention rates actually on the, the Pelotons of the world and the tonals of the world are, are quite high. Um, so, you know, there's there's an anchor mechanism to the machines and equipment that people buy in-house that'll probably cause them to go back to the gym less. But there's a lot of platforms like Obey Fitness and Future that that are, you know, connectivity the same way that you have, you know, a teledoc, you have a teletrainer, and you can bring that person with you to the gym. And, and the convenience aspect is still there, the do it on your own time is still there. But the equipment and the experience might be one that people just want to be uh, in the gym for. So I think it's, it's certainly going to go back to, you know, a more healthy omni-channel kind of category. But I think the behaviors that we've seen will be quite sticky and, and kind of the adoption rates around expensive machinery that, you know, Peloton and, and the like are selling, those were at an all-time high over COVID. And, and those things themselves are, are very sticky in terms of consumer behavior. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the offshoot of connected fitness, which we're seeing in the companies like Levels and Elo, where they're using personal data and then helping to increase and boost performance nutrition, which then directly correlates to, you know, your in-home connected fitness or just fitness in general. I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on those companies that are emerging. This is an interesting question. And I think this is where you kind of see a split between supply and demand. So there are some very cool businesses that have incredible technology for you to understand like the, the most nuanced element of your blood sugar levels or your, you know, blood oxygen levels, you know, people are just starting to, I don't know if any of you, or if you guys have the aura ring, but there's a lot of metrics in there that I didn't even know what they meant. And there's a good tutorial, but basically suffice it to say that the supply of awesome technologies and ability to like read consumer health data is all quite there, but the consumer appetite or willingness might not be, or that that's kind of just an education curve that, you know, we as consumers have to scale. So I don't know if it's, you know, a readily adoptable thing that people will stick a glucose monitor on the back of their arms if they're not diabetic and use it to monitor, you know, every aspect of how they should be eating and use it to kind of dictate forward behavior. It's, it's very interesting. Just, I, I think, Hopefully it does become the future because that will lead to people leading healthier lifestyles, leading more 
kind of just uh, educated, making more educated decisions around their their nutrition. But it, it's interesting. I, I think kind of the consumer adoption curve has to catch up with the technology that's available to us. And it's being assisted by things like Aura and by things like Lumen, which is um, like a, a metabolic tracker that you breathe into and it tells you you know, if you're burning carbs or if you're burning fat, all of that stuff is, is really awesome. And they're kind of market leaders in setting the groundwork for how consumers are going to be able to understand their health. But I think still today, it's, it's kind of nascent in terms of consumer adoption. Yeah, I'm always excited too to see technologies across different consumer verticals overlapping for the first time. Like I was reading about Aura implementing the ability to pay at a counter using the ring itself and kind of implementing with Square because I know that Dorsey is a big investor in Aura himself. So whenever you see trends like that, it makes me really excited for the future of consumer in general. And then just shifting to another theme you had talked about, you're giving a good attention to plant-based. Obviously, you guys were an investor in Oatly. Do you have an opinion on where to place your chips if you're deciding between plant-based dairy and plant-based meat? And have your level of confidence between those two sectors and, and how you kind of approach a strategy when, when you're looking across a sector that really just has so much activity in terms of fundraising and new startups popping up all the time? Yeah, that's another great question. So uh, I don't want to say we're agnostic between dairy and meat. I think there are aspects of dairy and meat that you can do better or worse. Like I think plant-based cheese is a really hard thing to nail because like scientifically, you cannot replicate the texture of cheese through plant-based, it, it has to be dairy to have the same stretchability and the same, you know, mouthfeel that we're used to. So that's really hard to do. That said, you can come very, very close and whether or not there's patent protection or like process or formulation protection in the formulation itself, uh, I think that's really interesting and that creates competitive moat. Same could be said for certain types of meat, cell-based lobster. It's very hard to create the texture of lobster and you know, chicken was a hard thing to crack for a long time. And you've seen companies like Daring and Nug start to get close to that chicken texture. So I think really what I'm getting at is is the closer you can come towards replicating what consumers are used to and the real thing, the closer you get towards scalability. And so I think there's there's a couple of aspects between both dairy and meat that we've really emphasized. The first is nutritionals. So having, you know, you can get very close in texture and taste, but have completely unhealthy nutritionals relative to, you know, the commodity product. So how close can you get uh, to regular chicken, regular beef, regular pork, regular, you know, milk on a nutritional basis? And and beyond that, just be enhanced nutritionally and provide some function to the consumer that's not getting from the commodity. The other really important part between both of them is just price parity. So, you know, within meat, it's I think cellular ag is really, really exciting, but it's a far cry away from price point parity where anything can sit on shelf and be, you know, competitive with commodity chicken or pork. So I think fermentation is kind of a like mycelium based or mushroom based meat and dairy is, is, you know, close to commercial scalability at a price point that's competitive with what exists in the market today. And um, to the extent that they provide health benefits and are, are kind of more eco friendly than existing options. Those are the aspects and traits that we really look for. And I think it's easier or harder to nail in dairy and meat, um, you know, variably based on like specifically which product line you're going after, but they're both categories that we're really excited about and want to continue to invest behind because I think plant-based is only going to continue to grow, you know, rapidly and take share from, from commodity products. And it's such a huge market. You nailed it. I mean, it's a huge market. And I think we often see in the plant-based world, 
that a lot of these companies are just loaded with other ingredients. And a big thing that we look at too is what companies are doing this well with a limited ingredient list and with like still a clean ingredient list. I'd love to pick your brain a little bit more about what companies you guys think are really doing it well. So either in the dairy space, in the alternative meat space, and then what companies are doing it well, like in regard to a smaller nutrition label or a smaller like ingredient list. So in terms of like who's doing it very, very well, and I haven't actually tried many of these products because a lot of them, you know, have a lot of claims and nutritionals that they can make and they know that they will be able to make, but their you know product is pretty far from being able to be like even tasteable. So I would say on the cheese side, you know, everybody's very familiar with Miyoko's and Miyoko's kind of set the market for plant-based cheese. And I think there's a couple of very interesting, like Spiro is one um, that's out there that's making plant-based cream cheeses quite interesting. And, and they'll, you know, roll out a pretty interesting product line of of other plant-based alternatives, Fora is a butter company that's making their their kind of ambition is to be the first plant-based bakery, uh, which is really interesting when you think about all the inputs into baked goods that are actually dairy or dairy derived. So they have a really good butter that that I love and it, it tastes exactly like regular butter. They're starting to make croissants as well, which um, are like buttery and flaky and all the same ways that you would want a croissant to be. In terms of the meat side, so I haven't tried the product by Meaty, but Meaty is kind of like a fermentation-based meat alternative um, similar to, to corn, which is kind of the initial you know market setter around fermentation-based meat. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton out there and, and we're trying them all. Cultured Decadence is a cellular ag lobster business that I'm so excited to try. There's been a lot less innovation in just the plant-based seafood side of the world. So excited to see some of those those roll out. But as you said, kind of the nutritionals and the price point stacking up to what exists on market is a lot of it is a, a maybe 10 to 12 years away from, from real viability. Yeah. I saw Meaty's huge series be at like 50 million. Very excited to try that when it becomes a bit more commercially available. I think I'm of kind of the point of view that right now, plant-based is slightly kind of just a buzzword and consumers are just really eager to, to try something because it's plant-based and I'm kind of excited to see where this industry is in like five to 10 years when really, you know, the vast majority of these products can both be plant-based, but also extremely nutritionally beneficial. I think there's quite a variance in kind of who is already at that point and kind of who isn't. And I'm particularly excited, like you were mentioning, to see where cell-based goes, just because if cell-based can be of taste and price parity to real meat and real dairy, I mean, I think that is really taking all of the great parts of real dairy and real meat and, and not really stripping them. And and I just think there's a lot of runway and potential in, in kind of that area. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Just flipping to a to a completely different topic and really enjoyed talking about the trends there. And I think the marketing landscape in general is changing. I think like more than ever, consumers are demanding authenticity from, from brands that they love. Have you experienced any brands over the last few years that you really feel like are bringing something authentic and unique to the way that they're positioning their brands? whether that's leveraging technology or just a different strategy for positioning and and kind of marketing mix. Yeah, definitely. There's a handful of brands just right out of the gate that have done that, like that have launched this year that I am tracking really closely. And I think what they're doing with their, their brand and the marketing is super playful and fun. One of them is in the sun care space called vacation. I'm like a huge music fan. And for 
ever, like while I was in banking and I've lived on this thing, Poolside FM. And it's this cool, like analog radio station that like transports you to just Jimmy Buffett, like Margaritaville. And it's, it's great music. So they've kind of leveraged the strength of the Poolside brand and created a sunscreen. It'll be a full sun care line, but um, they've got sunscreen tanning oil, you know, a mineral lotion and um, actually a perfume and eau de toilette that smells like sunscreen. So most people buy like expensive, you know, Michael Kors perfumes and they're all floral. It's like smells like sunscreen. So you're spraying yourself with sunscreen smell. So they're really funny. They're like irreverent. They're incredibly relatable. They have like a built-in audience of poolside evangelists that immediately transitioned over to the brand when it launched. And they assigned everybody like a role Basically, when you when they launched and you entered your email, like I was associate backgammon dice cup evaluator, which like is now on my LinkedIn. Like they created these mo- these little moments and like tidbits to help it go viral, and I think it did just what it was supposed to do, and it's attracted a lot of attention. So I love what they're up to. Another brand that's cool in the it's a hibiscus water called Ruby. Their newsletter for anybody who hasn't subscribed to it, I, I don't know what the URL is, but it's Drink Ruby Hibiscus Water. And the, the newsletter itself has like culture recommendations, music recommendations, just like art pieces that you'd never otherwise stumble across. And it's just this incredibly curated like universe. It's called the Rubyverse. And it's never selling you on the product. It's just like bringing you into the tone and the voice and the spirit of the brand. And I think they've just done an incredible job at setting up this universe that, that people want to be a part of and talk about. And then I guess the last one that I'll point out is a company called Gold, G-O-L-D-E. So this one, it's like a, a powder business, turmeric powders and you know health powders, they find it in Target. But I think what they've done a really good job at is just being an incredibly founder-led business. So it's run by a woman called Trinity Muzan Wofford. She's just like an incredible force. She's out there every day talking to her customers, doing live Q&As on their Instagram. And and people associate the brand on shelf with Trinity. And so they've they've bought into more than just the brand and the product. They're very much brought into like the spirit of the founder and the mission. And so that's another one that I think is just all really differentiated on a marketing and brand level. And it's hard to stand out in consumer a lot. And I think they've all done a good job piercing through the noise. Yeah, very good answer. And Rachel and I have followed Vacation and, and Ruby quite closely. I met with Noah a few weeks ago, super pumped about what we're seeing with the Rubyverse. And it's it's a great product. And if any of our listeners are in NYC, uh, they're in Whole Foods. So feel free to go check out Ruby in store if you want to try a great tasting hibiscus water. Yeah. And I'm I'm a big Vacation fan. I actually, I have the, the perfume and it smells incredible. Think about just how ingenious it is to get a bunch of people to turn their LinkedIn's into like vacation ambassadors. Like think about that, like flipping LinkedIn on its head. It's, it's just, they're so smart. LinkedIn is, is, it, you know, it used to be so formal and kind of like a professional recruiting tool. And now I feel like it's like a buzz tool now as well, you know? I think it's because like when millennials, when we were all in college, like that's when LinkedIn was just getting started. And so we've kind of decided to upend the professionalism of it. And I definitely am a little bit of a troll on LinkedIn, but it's my favorite form of social media. Me too. We love to shift a little bit to the female entrepreneurship space. It's something I really am excited to chat with you about. um, And I know that you're involved in a lot of different areas within it. Can you tell us about Rad Ladies and why it's so important for you to support female founders? 
Yeah, definitely. Very glad you asked. Rad Ladies is my like female founder network that I've been putting together for the last like four and a half, five years. Came about very organically. I just happened to like sit in on so many pitches when I started in venture, many of which were male, but then on the the kind of rare occasion that a female would come in and pitch, I just saw the different kind of tone and pace of the meeting and you know, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was just, I wanted to kind of call it out and and put women together in a room and say, you know, what are the struggles that you're coming up against in fundraising conversations, but, you know, more so you're all founders and I'm sitting kind of at the node of having all these meetings, but really what I should just be doing is being the connective tissue between awesome female founders that should know each other. So I kind of did just that and it's grown by referral uh, over the last four or five years. And it's just this really exceptional community of supportive founders that are sharing, you know, everything from the three PLs that they use to the branding agencies that they've used and recommend and to, you know, fundraising tips and deck templates. And it's, it's kind of just this all encompassing environment and world for women to feel comfortable talking about either their insecurities, their vulnerabilities, or, or their achievement and what other women can learn from their achievements and scaling their brands as well. So it's just, I don't know, it's important to me because as a female investor where there aren't that many, you know, women with check rating capabilities in the in the investing ecosystem, you know, you see very few women walking through doors pitching meetings more than it ever has been, which I'm excited about, but there's still, you know, a ton of work to be done in reconciling where funding dollars go. And I think the more that you can empower people with information and resources, um, the you know faster you kind of remedy that uh, discussion. So um, that's why you know I've, I've got to go. We got a Slack channel now. I'm excited to get real live events going again now that COVID is over, but we do like TikTok tutorials and we do executive coaching sessions and you know, speakeasy events and like just wine tastings where there's no agenda or it's completely informal. But yeah, it's a really fun community. And I encourage, you know, any female founder who's trying to be a part of any type of community that's impactful or resourceful to ask and to just get involved. Yeah, I'm a female founder and I think it's really empowering to have resources out there for female founders when we live in a world with still like some discrepancies in the gender gap. Shifting a little bit to women and investing specifically, what are some of the challenges you think women face in the investing world and in other advice or resources for females looking to break into the space? Yeah, the first like resource or piece of advice I'd point women to I think the biggest issue and at least what I came up against is that there's very few women senior to you that you know you can look up to and get mentorship from there aren't that many women as I said in in kind of like GP spots and so I had a really good community of mentors like you know Heather Hartnett from Human Ventures and Soraya from Trail Mix who were all willing to take extra time and put junior investors junior women investors in a room and say you know this is how we raised our funds. This is the first kind of term sheet that I issued and this is how I negotiated it. And those were really like invaluable conversations for me. So I definitely want to continue to be somebody that, that, you know, junior women can come up to and speak to. And as I, I still have tons of room to grow uh, in my career. So I'm going to keep leaning on, you know, senior women, but I think the, the biggest piece of advice is with women entering kind of junior investing roles is find 
the GPs uh, that can take the time and, and have the energy to mentor you and train you because those people are, are really kind of leading the charge. The other thing is if you have the ability to like angel invest or serve as an advisor to early stage companies, that's really how you develop your track record and you develop the ability to be a kind of proxy board member. You learn how to have conversations with founders. You start to come up with your own resources and you know ability to help these founders, which will serve you really well in a future investing role. So to the extent that you can write angel checks, that gives you there's no there's no better you know, opportunity to kind of prove where your investment dollars will go and how you're able to to create outside growth than to, you know, just invest with your own money and, and kind of guide founders uh, the way that, that you would as an investor or as a board member. So if that's available and, and something that, that, you know, you can do as a young woman in investing, fully encourage that as well. We'd love to wrap up a little bit. And one of our favorite questions that we like to ask all of our guests on this show is what does it mean to subscribe to wellness to you? So what are some newer old habits that are part of your daily routine that really allow you to live a healthy life? I would say the cornerstone of my wellness routine is, is as kitschy as this might sound, just gratitude. Like I definitely think every day about how happy I am to be in the world that I'm in and to be surrounded by, you know, the smart challenging people that I I get to work with and, you know, the friends that I have, I'm feeling grateful all the time. Like I I really take moments to pause and try to just, and that might not sound like a wellness thing, but I think it kind of keeps me in a state of mind that is eternally just like optimistic and positive. I sleep a lot. I I try to get eight to nine hours of sleep, which I know people are going to like, I read the book, Why We Sleep, as everybody I'm sure has. And it just like the idea of sleep being like a shower for your brain every night. Like I have to get it. I have to get my full eight hours. I sweat every day. So I try to work out for like 45 minutes to an hour every day. But if I can't get that, like I'll get a 20 minute sweat in. It is every day. It's like without compromise. So that's a big part of my routine. I'm not very stringent about what I eat or drink. I try to be healthy when it's convenient and when it's, you know, available to me. But like, I think not stressing about it is probably also some form of wellness, you know, happiness is the cornerstone and gratitude is the cornerstone. And I think everything else kind of emanates from there. Yeah. I think gratitude on top of that sleep sweat combo is a good way to live your life. Yeah. Just want to thank you for spending time with us today. We, we really appreciate your insights and, and we'll be following the coefficient portfolio closely. Where can our listeners learn more about the latest going on at Coefficient? Ooh, well, we have a quarterly series that we put out called the Coefficient Collective. The last one I did, I interviewed Mike Messersmith from Oatly on the heels of their IPO. So we have some pretty cool insights and thought leadership coming out of the Coefficient Collective. Our mid-year and our full-year trends report are really exciting places to just you know, what we developed it in tandem with Dan Fromer of The New Consumer. So he publishes a great consumer newsletter. And it's really kind of a data-driven insights into consumer behavior and, and trends that we're following and that we'll probably invest behind. And then outside of that, if you're a founder or another investor, just get in touch with us. We're, we're in New York. Our office is always open for meetings. And we're happy to have just as many kind of connections and touch points in the consumer and tech world as we can. So we're a small team, but we'll take as many meetings as we possibly can. Awesome. Thank you again. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Anna. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness.
If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of the week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time.